All right, we are um, in our discussions of Matthew, and related to the discussions of Matthew, um, uh, we're in chapter 10. Um, our time is a little tighter than uh, uh, what I expected, and with, with the uh, Thanksgiving agape coming up, I don't want to uh, tie into that. So we'll see if we get through the whole chapter or not. That'll depend somewhat on you. Uh, in terms of uh, the the questions and the comments. So, in uh, chapter 10, remember in chapter 9, we have the calling of Matthew, uh, which is then followed by discussions of the difference between the Pharisees and the disciples of Jesus and the disciples of John with regard to fasting and with regard to uh, other people. Aspects, And so in that context, we begin to get introduced to the disciples of Jesus, which we will see in uh, more detail here in chapter 10. Uh, But then, of course, um, the Lord ends by saying uh, that the harvest is plentiful, but there are few workers. And so pray the Lord of the harvest to send workers out into his harvest. It's always been interesting to me that that passage doesn't say, okay, everybody get out and start doing the harvest. Uh, Because uh, the goal is to seek the Lord of the harvest, to send those that he is sending to work the harvest. And that requires some levels of maturity and discipling and training and that. And we get that in chapter 10 with with the disciples. So we'll begin at chapter 10, verse 1. It says, Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. The name of the twelve apostles were Simon, called Peter, Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them. Now I'm going to stop at that point and and, uh, say something here. These disciples, these men that Jesus uh, selects, we don't get a lot of information about them and it's easy for us to assume that Jesus went out and found twelve single guys and brought them into ministry. That is not the case. Paul makes it very clear that the brothers of Jesus and that the apostles and Peter, uh, are all married. Uh, And we know that Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. Paul talks about, don't Barnabas and I have the ability to take a wife with us like the other apostles. So the normative is this calling of these men as heads of households. Uh, So I don't want you to think of disciples as he went down, he found a bunch of teenagers who had not started life yet. And then brought them in and and trained them. He took people who had families, people who were married, people who had businesses, people who had houses, people who were part of this life and this world. And he's going to use them as his witnesses. And he's going to use them as his apostles, his ones that are sent out. And so it says that he summoned them. We get the names of all of them. And we begin to get the uh, summoning in verse uh, Uh, five with the instructions. I want to stop here and see if there's anything based on what I just said that you want to discuss.
So I, the ages seem to be um, somewhere in the uh, late teens to near 30. Uh, it's possible that some of them were uh, the age of Jesus or a little older, but it, it's more likely that they were younger than him in, in that sense. Uh, so probably they're in the period called youth, uh, and they're in that period where they would uh, begin to move away from primarily family obligations to a more social public uh, participation in that sense. Let me pick it up at, chapter, at uh, verse 5 then. Um, it says, These twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them. Now, this is... Uh, what I like to jokingly say, Jesus is sending his disciples out on their first ISP trip. Those of you who went to Cal Baptist, you know what an ISP trip. It's kind of an a international service project. It's a short-term um, missionary endeavor uh, that has primarily its focus is not the effect of the missionizing but the effect of the training that it does on the disciples. Jesus will later send out 70, and then ultimately at the Great Commission, he will send the 11 out uh, in, this, in this context. So this is a beginning, and what we're going to see in this text is not just the instructions for that outing, but instructions for ministry or a pattern for ministry in general. So you want to uh, keep, keep that in mind. So he starts and he says, Do not go the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now it's really important to understand that Jesus' ministry was not to the world. Jesus' ministry was primarily to Israel, and the ministry of his apostles was primarily to Israel, we sometimes have this notion that Jesus is sending his disciples uh, everywhere in the world because of the way we interpret the Great Commission. But if you read the book of Acts, the disciples did not go anywhere. They stayed in Jerusalem. Making disciples of all the nations meant making disciples of the Jews who were in the diaspora. And they did that as they came into Jerusalem for the... For the um, Holy Days at Pentecost and at uh, Sukkot and at uh, Pesach. And so uh, that's what we see them doing. For the most part, the ministry to the Gentiles is not going to explode and happen until the Apostle Paul. Even though Peter will go to Gentiles, it will take a vision and a uh, urging of God for him to do that. And the issue is not for him to understand the Great Commission, but for him to understand that God is calling out a people for his name from the Gentiles as well. So um, it's important to see that what Jesus is telling them is, look, I don't want you going to the Gentiles, and I don't want you going to the Samaritans. The Jews had three groups in mind. There were Jews, there were Samaritans who they thought of as intermarried, assimilated kind of not fully Jewish, and then rank Gentiles, which would be uh, the nations around 
uh, the land of Israel there. So Jesus specifically tells them, I don't want you going there. I want you to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This will show up later as Paul says, I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. Peter is the apostle to the circumcision. It's fascinating to me how Christian history has Peter as the first pope and that pope seems to be the Gentile uh, faith version of this. But the reality is that Peter was primarily focused on reaching the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Paul was primarily concerned with reaching the Gentiles. Now that doesn't mean that Paul never reached Jews. He certainly started his ministry always in the synagogue. And Peter didn't not talk to Gentiles, but that was not where his primary focus was. So I want to cut it at that point. Okay, so uh, so let's pick it up with, and again, remember that these verses are not just telling them how to minister, but they're going to be a pattern of ministry that will be followed both in uh, the Jewish form of the Yeshua faith and the Christian uh, Gentile form. Uh, so he says, as you go, interesting, this phrase is similar to what would be the way to translate the Matthew passage. As you go. It's not go here, then go here, then go here. It's as you're going. You know, in the normal activities of your life, as you're going in this process, uh, you are to preach saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Important, the kingdom of heaven is what Israel is waiting for. It's what the restoration of Israel is. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of Israel are supposed to be manifest in the earth. So that it is about to come into its fullness. And so he says, so preach that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you have received Freely give. Now let me talk about this first part. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Those four things are normative of the kingdom of heaven when it comes. There will not be sickness. Death will be minimally uh, there. Uh, demons will be bound and uncleanness will be gone. In other words, when the kingdom comes, all of these promises of God will be there. So when Jesus is ministering, and He's healing the sick, and He's raising the dead, and He's casting out demons, and He's cleansing lepers, it is a manifestation of the kingdom to come to say, it's here. It's right at the door, and you should see what that is. And the and that's why many of the people thought that he was the Messiah. Because that's what the Messiah is supposed to do. Now, it's interesting. He now tells his disciples to do that. This, is, this has been a struggle for missionaries and for theologians. To what extent can we, in fact, in ministry, engage in these things? And from time to time, there are manifestations of God doing things through missionaries, through pastors, through ministers uh, that that seem to, to show this. But it's not uniform and it's not consistent. It seems to be mostly at times where the gospel is entering a place. 
uh, and not then remains as a normative uh, situation. Uh, but it does happen throughout history where we see these kinds of things happening. So he says for them to do that. Then he says, I, this is what's important, and it goes to um, what that previous question, why I didn't answer it until now. So he says, freely you have received, freely give. You have received this ministry free. You are not to charge for it. You are to just give it as Jesus himself gave it. Now, he says then, do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belt. Don't make a profit off of this ministry. Or a bag for your journey, or even two coats or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worthy of his support. Now what he's going to suggest is, I don't want you building up money, you are worthy of your support, and that support notion is a notion that goes back to the Older Testament with the prophets. So I want to take a look at that. So he says, uh, whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it, and stay at his house until you leave that city. In other words, you're going to go in, you're going to find out who's worthy. I'll talk about that in a minute. And then you're going to stay in that person's house. Not going to bounce from house to house. Going to stay at his house until you leave the city. As you enter the house, give it your greeting. If the house is worthy, that is, they treat you well, uh, give it your blessing of peace. If it is not worthy, take back your blessing of peace. And he says, whoever does not receive you nor heed your words, as you go out of that house and of that city, shake the dust off your feet. I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the days of judgment than for that city. So let me try to explain what's going on here. First of all, this is not talking about pastors. It's really talking about those emissaries, what we would today call a missionary or a evangelist who is bringing the gospel into an area. And so you would go in and find a, uh, in their, their case, they would find a Jewish man who is a, uh, a righteous person who's waiting for the reconciliation of Israel and all the things that are promised. And you would inquire, where is somebody who has this hope and this faith in them? We've heard of Simeon and others who had that. And you would go there and say, I'm an emissary of the Lord. Now, if you recall back with Elisha and Elijah, there was a widow that uh, had a room that she kept for him whenever he was in the area. And so he would come and he would stay at her house. Uh, it began when she was going to eat and die with her son. But he said, feed me first. And then it supplied for her. So the idea is that people would come and they would be taken care of in the home of a faithful person. They would share their food with them. They would share their house with them for, for them being there. They would not be there a long time, but they would maybe be there for uh, a few days or maybe even a week or two. And they would take care of them so that they could then go to the community and talk to the community about the message of God. And that's what he's talking about. He says, so you find this person who's worthy, you stay in their house. If they treat you good, put your blessing of peace on them because what will happen is... I'm going to bless them. 
Uh, and then if you, if they have not treated you all that well, they minimally did it or you were kind of, you know, they stuck you in a garage, that kind of thing, uh, take your peace back. And if they reject you, then, uh, and it's a statement of blessing, you take back that blessing. So you say, may peace be upon this house as you enter and you leave it there if they've been treated good. As you leave, may peace continue to be on this house. But if they didn't, you say, may peace depart as I depart from this house, right? And, and that puts the judgment of God upon that place. So, he says, uh, in that sense, that if they receive you in my name, with the uh, notion of the word of God being confirmed, then uh, I will bless them. But if not they're going to receive a severe judgment. He says the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah will be worse. Now remember, Sodom and Gomorrah, when the angels came, they were not received. They were mistreated, or they attempted to mistreat them. Even though Lot brought them into his house and tried to protect them even from the people of the city. So you can see the imagery that Jesus is talking about here. For his, his own. You, I am sending you like angels. To Sodom and Gomorrah. I am sending you into the world. In that sense. So that's what he's talking about. Up to verse 15. We'll stop there and see uh, if there are questions. So. Uh, we, we have to think about this. In the time of. The first century. So. These Jews in. The Judean area, even in the Galilee, are farmers and herders for the most part. Uh, some of the disciples are fishermen. Those things are somewhat seasonal. And so you can leave during times when the seasons are, are separate. Uh, also, um, the fishing industry around the Galilee was significant. They've, they've found that these were not little individual things, but multiple boats. If they had multiple boats, they had managers and other people in the same way that a business owner might today not have to do all the, the, the work, they could take care of that. So these are not necessarily people who are living hand to mouth in, in that sense. Yeah. So, so we tend to think of, we live in an industrial business, capitalistic system. That is not the context of the Bible. Um, even rural settings now are not um, exactly what they were doing. Uh, my grandfather had a self-sufficient farm um, and most of the, his sons worked the farm and when I'd go up in the summer I'd do things and, and I got this idea of the rhythm of the seasons you're not working like you do if you're working at a factory or you're working for an insurance company. It's a different, it's a different pace of life. I'm not going to say the work is easy. The work is not easy. But it's a different pace of life which allows for seasonal uh, travels and trading. Even my grandfather had some part-time jobs to supplement at those seasons. And so I think we have to think of this more in that way than we do the way we do now where we have professional ministry and we have professional missionaries and all, that's simply not part of the biblical um, worldview. 
not saying we can't do that. I'm just saying you're going to have trouble finding verses for that in the scripture because that comes out of the 1800s and not out of the first century. So the kind of thing that you're talking about where people live very, very subsistence lives, probably there were a lot of people in Israel and surrounding uh, places that did that. They would they would sleep out in the open and they took care of that or they might have a small shelter, particularly if they were more like Bedouins, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, and then you had people who were living a little more kind of an urban thing, particularly in Jerusalem, uh, because it would it would be much more of a place. And there, of course, was Tiberius, which the Romans had and and the Romans had a pretty organized system too. But again, Jews weren't as tied into those systems as, as they might be today. The, uh, don't return evil for evil is really, uh, you do evil to me and I do evil for you. Okay? What this is, what the blessing is, I am asking God to bless this house because I've come in the name of God. And God has now been rejected. And therefore I'm taking that blessing off. And God will do the judging. I'm not doing the judging. Okay. So it's, 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 does that make sense? It's a somewhat different kind of, it's, it's what we're taught. I, I think this, I'm glad you brought this up. We're not supposed to return evil for evil. We're not supposed to seek our own vengeance. We are to leave place for the vengeance of the Lord. And I think that that's what that's talking about. It's basically saying, okay, God, you, you judge this. Um, because they have rejected what I'm trying to do. And judge, God may judge it um, uh, lighter or heavier depending on the extent to which they are rejecting you. So I think that that's, that's what's going on there. That so, so you see this. This is a very different environment than we have. Okay, uh, we we hardly take our relatives into our homes, let alone taking strangers into our homes. Right? It was very common among the Jewish people to take one another into their homes, in part because that's part of the Torah commandments. And in part because they lived in a world that was hostile to them. So a fellow Jew was somebody that you would care for. Okay? And so the idea was that they would bring them into their home. They would feed them. They would take care of them. We see this with Paul. Paul goes where he can stay with somebody. If he can't, if there's nobody he can stay with... Then he makes some tents and he works his own his own system, right? But if he can, he he will do that. So it really is a different system than what we have today. Although I've seen some things that are similar to it. Back in the days when I first got into ministry, it wasn't unusual it wasn't unusual for pastors to when they were called to a church to live in a house that was owned by the church called a parsonage. Uh, when Linda and I first came to the El Medina Friends Church, they didn't have a parsonage for us. They had one for the pastor. But they did a pounding. The first time they said pounding to me, I thought I was going to get beat up. What they did is, on Sunday nights, everybody would bring a pound of food, sugar, salt, all that kind of stuff, to, to take care of our pantry. 
Um, and so you got paid a little different than just a, a, a salary and that kind of thing. Over time, that fell apart. That system fell apart. And we moved to a more salaried business thing. So now we expect the pastor to get his own apartment or his own house. And, and we give him uh, you know, a salary. And that. that is not in the mindset. Remember that what developed early in the Christian world was the uh, people would take a vow of poverty and they would simply live on what people would provide for them. Uh, now, Paul is a bivocational, if you will, apostle. If they will take care of him, he will do it. If not, he will pay for it himself. And in some cases, he will refuse to let them pay him because he believes that that will give him a greater reward. It's one of the reasons that uh, I started out being paid as a pastor and moved in the direction of not being paid as a pastor and why I teach, because I, I agree with that notion that Paul's not, it's not required. I don't have to do it. Paul didn't have to do it. But there is a basis for doing it that's biblical, but it's a voluntary thing that the, that the person does, right? Uh, so, are we, are we where I can repeat it? So the, the blessing on the house versus the town. There's more text where Jesus talks about this. And this particular part, he's talking about the person who's taking care of you. Okay? His house. You put the blessing on his house, you leave it on his house, you take it off. But he does say, and we'll see this in the persecution, if the town rejects you, then when you come to the edge of the town, you shake the dust off your feet. Then it will, they will be under judgment. Okay? You bring nothing from that town. You remember that when God was going to judge a town, he said, don't take anything from there. Right? Uh, it's all under the ban. Because it's all going to be judged. So that's the shaking of the dust off the feet. Um, so there is the individual household and there is the community. The Bible talks about individual responsibility and it talks about group responsibility. So, for example, if a body is found outside of a village, the elders have to stand around the body and they have to acknowledge to God that they had nothing to do with it. They're saying, our city is innocent of the blood of this man, right? Because there's corporate guilt. Remember Achan, he did one thing and God was plaguing Israel, right? So we have responsibility as individual believers. I have responsibility for my household. But we have responsibility as the disciple center as well. And we have generational responsibility. Jesus said it will be harder on this generation, right? And we have national responsibility as a people group. The Bible treats all of those responsibilities in relationship to the judgment, which is a doctrine that most Christians have never heard because they've got this idea that when Jesus died on the cross, all judgment went away under all circumstances and all times. It's an ollie ollie oxen free. And that's not really what the scripture says. Now, it does with regard to salvation, but it doesn't with regard to judgment and place in the kingdom and reward and all of those things. 